0: Okay, welcome back. I'll take a reading from the big book, page six. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street, lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-like place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would soon recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that, so two bottles in oblivion. I'll hand you back over to Tim. My name is Tim, and I'm an alcoholic. <coughs> Tim... Okay, let's just imagine a scenario. This is your morning. You wake up. uh, Your brain is racing uncontrollably. There's a terrible sense of impending calamity. You don't dare cross the street in case you collapse and you're run over by an early morning truck. And then you phone your sponsor and your sponsor says, just roll the tape forward. (laughs) You have a mind which is racing uncontrollably, okay? And you're supposed to sit back soberly and roll the tape forward and imagine what the consequences are and make a rational decision that drinking would be a really, really bad idea. Um, when I get to this point, I am way past the rolling forward of tapes. <laughs> it does not. It does not work. But before we get on to that, I want to talk about the physical, the physical um, craving. Um, it's a bit, in the doctor's opinion, it says. Uh, We who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, number one, that we were in full flight from reality, number two, or were outright mental defectives, uh, number three. Uh, these things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of, some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. And this is my problem. I was nine and a half years sober. I'd been sober twice as long as uh, I drank for. Um, and I wasn't sure that I was an alcoholic anymore. I thought, well perhaps I drank the way I did because I was young. Perhaps I drank the way I did because I was stupid. Perhaps I drank the way I did because I was just out of control emotionally. Now I've got a life. Why wouldn't I be able to drink normally? Just I mean, not that I didn't want to get drunk. I mean I would still want to get if I was gonna drink again, I'd I'd still get drunk every night, but not I wouldn't overshoot. Um, when I was drinking, pretty much every time I wanted to get drunk. But I always got more drunk than I intended to. Um, the first half, the first three quarters of the evening was, was, was fine. It took away the anxiety, it took away the loneliness, it took away the depression. But I always, always overshot People say sometimes, you, sometimes in recovery you hear things, and if enough people say it, it's like it must be true because enough people are saying it. And then you start saying, and you think, well, if I'm saying it, it's definitely true. <laughs> um, and one, one of the things they, in these people in recovery, say is, uh, I drank because of the uh, effect. Well, maybe true for the first drink. The first drink had a staggering effect on me um, I'll come back to that in a second but okay we're looking at gin and tonic number 16 what effect did that have? none <laughs> I, I, I would sit there with I remember when I was about 18 sitting there with a pint glass <laughs> full of it was a, a little cocktail of my own devising pint glass gin creme de menthe and crunch a cacao. So chocolate, mint, and gin. It was my it was my after eight, I would call it. And I would drink it, I would I would drink it down, and I remember my friend Adam saying, The funny thing is, it's had absolutely no effect on you. And he was right, because I was drunk already before I had it. The first drink, this is, is true, the first drink gets you drunk. I was drunk on the first drink, and after a few, it was like water. Um, There was this very slow blurring, and then at some point I'd be in blackout or passed out, but I didn't feel any effect from the 14th or the 19th drink. I was just drinking. And I've got to ask myself, well... The physical craving doesn't, doesn't affect the past, it affects the future. If I drank today, what would happen? And it is a question I need to ask, because I see people at 10, 15, 20 years sober drinking again. Uh, sometimes on the back of the idea, especially people that get into recovery young, there is the belief sometimes that you drank the way you did because you were young. Um... I need to be convinced that if I drank today what always happened will always happen and every time I drank if drink was available if I could if the supply was secure I would overshoot and this was on a good day this was on a bad day this was you know, in, I remember having an amazing holiday when I was about 19. It was a, one of those little oases in my drinking, which was just, it was a sensational six weeks in all around Europe with with someone. Um, we were drinking every night, but I would get drunk, and it was sensational. We were, you know, we'd be sitting um, on a campsite overlooking Florence one day, and another town in Italy the next day. This amazing, amazing weather, amazing scenery below and you get drunk and you overshoot and you go into the, this 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 dark, tight, narrow place and rage starts to bubble up and you're arguing with someone you were having this amazing time with 15 minutes early. Why did I... T- I knew I wasn't stupid. I knew if I went on to the third box of wine I would go to that place but I went there anyway. I went there despite how it made me feel. It wasn't because of how it made me feel, it was despite how it made me feel. Why, why, would, I, why would I do that? The same on my, exactly the same on my 18th birthday, I massively overshot, ran away from all the people I was with and threw up everywhere. I did not intend to do any of that. The fact is, once I've had a drink, Uh, the whole decision-making process gets turned off and I just want more Um, and nothing can uh, nothing can interfere with that Uh, and if you try and get in my way you're toast I don't care who you are I don't care how much this is going to hurt you (laughs) Um, you're in my way And I remember a time when I was about 20, 21, and because of of my family history, my mother's sensitive around people that drink more than is entirely good for them. And I remember creeping down to the larder to get another bottle of wine at about two or three in the morning, and she's a light sleeper, and she barred my way. And I just totally freaked out at her. And I did not... She was a frail old woman. I mean, she was in her... Uh, She's in her 80s now. She's small and frail and frightened looking. And I was a monster. And I knew this was against everything within me to be like that. But I just had to have more. Um, And I know I'm like... Because I'm like this with all sorts of other things. I know that mechanism is still there. Because I started smoking again. I stopped smoking cigarettes when I was about a year sober, I started again when I was, uh, I said cigarettes there just in case I thought it was something else. So at seven years I started smoking again and it wasn't anything, it was cigarettes. Um, <laughs> 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 and uh, with, I mean, it's not like anyone doesn't know what cigarettes do to you. It's... <laughs> lack of information ain't the problem there and i was convinced that because i'd given up easily at the age of 21 a couple, that i had a couple of difficult weeks but basically i gave up and it was pretty plain sailing i thought if it gets bad enough if i decide i want to stop i will stop and i tried every day for seven years to stop and i just couldn't, and I watched my father die of lung cancer throughout this, going out for a fag every 10 minutes. So when I'm in it, once I've started, nothing is going to get through it. Um, when I looked at my smoking, um, I wasn't in full <coughs> flight from reality. I knew exactly what I was doing. And I look back at my drinking, and in a sense, I knew exactly what I was doing. Um, this could being maladjusted to life explain it. Um, I was maladjusted to life, greatly maladjusted to life, uh, before I started drinking, and by the time I got to the end, I was about as maladjusted as you can get. But... In those, bri- in those rare times when everything was going my way and I was happy and I was content, I still did the same thing. It's not like the drinking calmed down then. It actually took off and, and was even worse at times. So I cannot blame the amount that I drank on being messed up. It doesn't work. That's why it says, this is th- this sat- this answer, that there's something physically different about us, satisfies us when nothing else will. Um... And I am convinced that if I drank today, I don't know how long it would take, but I'd be off to the races. And because of, you know, it took me seven years to stop smoking, off the back of one cigarette. Uh, I remember when I um, started drinking again after a period of sobriety in 1991, I was drunk for a year and a half. I do not know uh, where it's gonna go. So the problem is uh, not having the first drink or drug. Um, So when it says on page 23 that the problem of the alcoholic centres in the mind, um, as Chuck would say, it really helps to know what the problem is. The problem um, is in my sober mind. By definition, the first drink uh, I'm taking stone cold sober. Um and the funny thing is, yeah, drink helps it it calms writhing nerves, <laughs> whether your nerves are writhing um because of the alcohol from the night before. That was certainly the case with me. I would be recovering the next day through to, I was a recovering alcoholic all through my drinking. I spent every day trying to recover from the night before. And as soon as I was recovered at about four o'clock, I'd have about half an hour when I could get stuff done to keep my life ticking over. And then I would need, I'd been such a good boy About half an hour, 45 minutes, (laughs) that now I need a reward. (laughs) So I would start again and my writhing nerves would be calmed. Um, But there's a a funny old thing that happens to someone like me. Um, Sometimes you go to meetings and people talk about, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, or these sort of extreme emotional states, and if you get to, if your emotional state gets too extreme, um, you're going to drink again. Um, I want to tell you about the the last day that I drank alcohol. I got up in the morning. I phoned some AA people. I think I spoke to my sponsor that day. I remember reading on the tube on the way to the lunchtime meeting about step six and seven. Um, I was about a month sober, but I was reading about Step 6 and 7 it all seemed very interesting. I I, I agreed with it. And I got to the meeting and there was, there was some old girl in the chair, um, and she trotted out her story. I didn't think much of it really. Um, but, um, you know, I recognised that she needed to be there as much as I did, and she had a right to tell her story. and. I was told to share at meetings, so I shared beautifully um, and basked for the next 10-15 minutes, imagining the impression it must have been made that someone so new in AA could be, could have picked up such wisdom (laughs) in such a short time and how they would be telling people, you know Jean, there was this newcomer today and he just blew my, the humility in him, it just <laughs> blew my mind. And once I got bored of that, there was ten minutes of the meeting to go. And I thought, I, 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 I'm not really fussed to listen to the rest of this. I, I, I hadn't actually heard any of it by this stage. I, I just judged and listened to myself and I left the room. And I was going to be going to 3 o'clock Hind Street and then 6.30 Notting Hill Uh, I walk out onto Ladbroke Grove and I walk up uh, the road and I thought, you know what, I fancy a pint. And the very next thought was I'll have a pint. (laughs) Absolutely nothing going on. And there was this There was this sense, that it talks in Jim's story about a vague sense that I wasn't being any too smart, but there was this, there was this feeling, there's this feeling that comes over me just before the first drink, when I think, um, there's power in this somehow, that I'm going to, it's like trying to, uh... It's the thought of riding something and taking control of it. I'm going to give it another go. Let's see if I can master it this time. And it's incredibly exciting because you think this time, all of, you, all of you lightweights having to go to these meetings, you don't get to have this kind of fun. You don't get to have this kind of excitement. And this rush cut, this chemical. I get this chemical rush before I've had the first drink. And by the time I've had that chemical rush, the first drink is going to happen. I'm drunk before I'm having the first drink. And I'm drunk on the idea of my own power. And I had a pint, and I had another pint. And I could almost feel the horns growing out of my head. And I went to the off-license, and I bought a bottle of something stronger, And I drank it sitting on the side of the road opposite the Serbian church with all these people coming out of the meeting, waving at me, and I held my bottle up proudly because I'd shown them. I I knew that I was superior to them. I was king of the world sitting opposite that church with the bottle in my hand. That's how I felt. I felt king for a day. I thought, what do I do now? But I don't know anyone who drank anymore. All my friends were sober in AA. I thought, I don't know what... I I need to liven this up a little bit. I need to... You know, if you're not having fun, you need to create your own fun. So I threw myself in front of a car. (laughs) Um, And I ran over, arrested, blah, 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 blah. Um, I was not particularly upset that day. I was actually I, I'm quite enjoying AA. <laughs> I wasn't particularly unhappy. I had a job. I was going to be study- starting to study again in a few weeks. I was living with my sister, paying about 30 quid a week. I, uh, I had friends. It's kind of okay. So what I know from that is... Um kind of being okay will not keep me sober there's something else going on surface i don 't drink again because of surface emotion and there are a couple of little bits here Jim's story on page uh, page thirty five um, so jim is uh Jim's got sober in AA, he's a good bloke, he says here, he's an intelligent man, normal, normal so far as we can see except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35, in a few years he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum he came into contact with us." Um. And there's this story about how he slips and there is no indication anywhere here that it's coming. It's, he's having a perfectly normal day. People say, it, the only sign is, I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Um, people say, oh, you see, I've got resentment. He's got unresolved resentment. Problems with his boss, that's why he drank. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. So, though, how many of you have been irritated at something so far this today? Yeah, I've been irritated by about fifteen things so far today. Partly because I'm staying in the Copthorne. Uh, no, it's a it's a lovely it's a lovely hotel. Uh, but if if he drank because he had a minor irritation. Boy am I stuffed. <laughs> he didn't drink because he had a minor irritation. Um something else going on. And you look at Bill's story on page fifteen. My wife and I abandoned ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. It was fortunate, for my old business associates remained sceptical for a year and a half, during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time, and was plagued by... plagued... <laughs> by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink, but I soon. Found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day, and this gives me a lot of hope as it tells me that you can have, you can be plagued with waves of self-pity and resentment and stay sober, and you can have a perfectly normal day, with a little irritation with your boss, and get drunk. So it's got nothing to do with what's going on on the surface. It's got to do, I believe, with something far deeper. I saw this program on, on, on the television a few years ago about um, earthquakes. Um, and it was about how they were devising these computer simulations of what's going on with these tectonic plates far below the surface of the earth. And you've got the, the, these land masses rubbing up against each other and this tension gets created. And at some point the tension becomes too much and it snaps into a new position. And as these two plates snap into a new position, that's what creates the earthquake on the surface. Something deep below the surface, this tension builds and builds and builds, and then it repositions itself. And meanwhile, you know, cities are destroyed. And they were trying to tell with these computer models, they are tracking back this sequence of earthquakes that had run across northern Turkey over 100 years. And... They kept running the computer model, saying, with what we know now, um, could we have predicted each of these earthquakes? And they fine-tuned it and fine-tuned it and fine-tuned it until they got it right. And they said, OK, this model will now predict, um, it's accurately predicted where these earthquakes had happened. Uh, it, we're going to run it again and see where the next earthquake is going to be. And the result came up, the earthquake, the next earthquake in northern Turkey, according to them, was going to be bang in the centre of Istanbul. The only thing they don't know is when it's going to happen. It could be tomorrow, or it could be in 50 years' time. And deep down within me, my whole life was this tension which was demanding some kind of relief. And I couldn't tell when it was gonna blow, but at some point it was gonna blow. And it talks, when Fred on page 39 to 43 is, uh, he's slipping as well, and um, they prophesy, they prophesy that at some time his mental defense would give way against some seemingly trivial excuse, they don't say when it's going to happen they say that it's going to happen and um, with Jim he makes a start on the AA programme but he doesn't complete it and it says for a while all went well and you look at Fred, same thing, amazing life for a while all was well. And you look at you look at Fred's you look at Fred's slip. Quite as important oh no. It's a bit uh, earlier. Yeah. Where is it? Where's the slip? In this frame of mind I went about my business and for a time all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard work of a simple matter. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. And then he has a drink. <laughs> um, there is something interesting about Jim's story which I think does explain why he has a dream. I'm just going to read it out. So Jim gets drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. And I'm going to read it in a particular way that isn't normally read. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car on the way I felt hungry. So I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar, for I had been going to it for years. I had eaten there many times during the months. I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. He has the drink. He says, that didn't seem to bother me. So I tried another. Identify with that. <laughs> I identify with that because, (laughs) I don't know about you, but I think I'm fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) At the centre of my universe. And people in AA, I've been told my whole life I was selfish, and uh, my mother would say, as I was growing up, you're selfish, and and I, I... I, I couldn't even get near that. It was just, it was so objectionable. I just, ugh. So I couldn't even begin to take that on board, but this, self, this self-centeredness. this um, self This is the test. If you want to know whether you're self-centered, it's not a moral judgment, okay? It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing, it's just a thing. If you want to tell whether you're self-centered, ask yourself, What proportion of the day you're thinking about any of these five things? Okay, number one. What do they think about me? Number two. What do I think about me? How am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) The third thing. What did you do to me? How dare you? Do that to me. The fourth thing. What do I want? What? what? (laughs) If you're feeling bad, what would make me feel better? If you're feeling good, what would be the cherry on the cake? (laughs) And what do I need to even break even for the day? So if I'm thinking about what you think about me, what I think about me, how you treat me, what I want and what I need, I'm self-centered. It's just a fact. Um, I can't survive for long on my own because the tension of having me stuck against my own face becomes too much and i i know this is someone else's image but i'm going to use it you know an alien that face hugger thing um which sticks to your face i'm like that with my own life that all i can see is me and sometimes it'll be a you know in a good way and i will be filled with grandiosity and this sense of smug superiority, and I'm going to the AA group, which has got the the true message. Everyone else is getting it wrong, but we're getting it right. Um, Or I can be having a terrible time, and I'm full of self-pity, and I just want to die. But whatever it is, it's me stuck to me. And when I have a drink, it falls off and I can breathe again. It's like someone's turned the oxygen back on. That's why I drink, because it's oxygen. It gives me something I need in order to be able to live. And unless I find that sober, I will drink again. Which is why it says, this is the first time it really connects The the mental side of this, um, the fact that when I'm stone-cold sober, left to my own devices, a drink will always seem like a good idea at some point or another. It connects this to the spiritual solution. It says, whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he's already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Um, it's all connected. That spiritual disconnection, if that isn't fixed, I'll drink again. If I get connected, I'll stay sober. And sometimes people say, well, to, to get and stay sober, you need, you need to work the steps. Seems like a pretty uncontroversial Statement to say in a strong group like this, you need to work the steps. You say it's a, uncontroversial. No, nope. <laughs> there's any contro controversy about that. But how do people stay sober until they finish them? If the steps keep you sober, how do people stay sober until and whilst they're working the steps? And well, people do regularly. Who will come in here, and they connect. That's how it works. Now, for me, that process has to be, you gotta keep the momentum up. If you don't keep the momentum up, that little connection you get, which is just enough to keep you sober at the beginning, will not be enough. But connection is what it's all about. And the thing that I realized, um, On the 24th of July, 1993, was that uh, after I was released from the cells, I was picked up from um, walking up the street after being released from the police station uh, by another member of AA who happened to be passing. He took me to a meeting. Um, I realised that if I slipped, I may never come back. And I realized that not with my mind; it happened at some cellular level, and I knew the game was up. And I had no reservation anymore. I didn't. And a funny, a funny thing happened as well. I didn't care how I felt anymore. All I wanted, all I wanted, was to be sober. And I didn't care what my emotions were doing. If I've got any condition on this if I can stay sober as long as you know I get the job I get the house as long as I don't want to kill myself as long as any of those things it won't work it won't work so I'm placing a condition on it Um, And look at steps two and three now Um, One of the problems, where are the steps? Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, Sanity, by the way, for me, is uh, not having the first drink. It's not not wanting the first drink, it's not having the first drink. That's the only sanity I need to be restored to. I I mean, I was pretty emotional and all over the place when I, I got here, but it's not what the step is about. Restoring us to sanity, um, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. One of the problems with these scroll things up is, uh, you look at them and you think that's the step. Is it so? Oh, it says steps, which would lead you to think <laughs> uh, that those are the steps. Those twelve little. Those two hundred words on that. Um, To me, they're not the steps, they're a summary of the steps. It says somewhere in the forward to the third edition. The twelve steps that summarize the program. So the program is a lot more than the twelve steps. And and step two is a lot more than what it says on there. Just like if you've got a a recipe book. Um, If it said, you know, uh, cheesecake. You know, recipe two cheesecake you would not be able to go and make a cheesecake on the basis of the word cheesecake (laughs) i'd love to see you try (laughs) um the word cheesecake is a summary of what you get when you take the when you follow the instructions for how to make a cheesecake came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity is the result of taking step two. But the actual step itself in the book, um, there are several elements to it, and it starts off on uh, page 44. If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago but we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us no matter how much we tried and uh, it was pretty clear what I, it was pretty clear i was told when i was new that what i needed to do was learn how to connect with everyone else become part of the world and as i gave to the world the world would give back to me and once i was connected with you i would never need to drink again because that would supply me with all of the stuff that drink promised and sometimes delivered. The, the feeling of health, happiness, harmony, love, joy, peace and connection. That if I could live a certain way, if I could live in accordance with these principles, I would get that. Health, happiness, harmony, love, joy, peace and connection. And everything I've ever thought I wanted, the relationships, the jobs, um, the money. I'm pretty simple, that's what it boils down to. Good sex money. <laughs> few friends to have a laugh with. I didn't want those things in and of themselves. I wanted them because I thought they were, they were the delivery system for health, happiness, harmony, love, joy, peace and connection. So you say, well you just need to do this, you just need to live in this particular way and you would be alright. And so i got to ask myself, well, why don't, do, why don't I just go and do that? Why do I need, the, why, why do I need these steps? Why don't I just go out into the world, connect with the world, give to other people, be selfless, you know, just take part, and then the world will deliver up to me everything that I need to be okay. In the family I failed to grow up in, um, I had an example in my dear old mother of how not to live, and I had an example in my father of how to live. My mother is what they call a neurotic. Uh, My father would say that on her gravestone, it's just going to have the name, the dates, and then the two words, what if, dot, dot, dot. Because every third sentence she started had the words, what if, with some, and full of worry, and if, when you got to the point that you could not stand being in the presence of this anxiety, in this worry, and this fretting, and this planning, any longer, you would leave the room and she would follow you in case you left it behind because she wanted to share her experience, strength, and hope with you. Um, Constantly monitoring the entire universe looking for defects, pointing them out, and adjusting everything in a thousand minor ways. And she was miserable and on her own. And my father, my, my, my father's two favourite phrases were, first of all to my mother, oh ye of little faith, and it might never happen, I wouldn't think about it if I were you. That's it, he, he wasn't a frightened man, he had no fear had no anxiety. His attitude was, it'll probably never happen. And if it does, it'll be all right. When he got cancer, he said, oh well. His last words to my mother were, we had a good run, haven't we? Oh. So I had this example my whole life of how to live. Who did I turn out like? <laughs> I did not turn out like my father. What this tells me is my problem is not lack of information. My problem is the total inability to live right, even when you tell me how to live right. My problem at any one point is either lack of information or it's lack of power. If I don't know which is which, give me the information, see if it works. If I'm just as stuffed once you've given me the information, uh, I know my problem is a lack of power. So lack of power is my dilemma. The next question is, uh, well, where where am I going to find this power? And um, a lot of people spend a lot of time in AA talking about God or what they refer to as the God thing, or having a, as they put it, a problem with God, which I always think is a very grand statement. God, which is this sort of (laughs) being that fills the universe, and you, this tiny little person, have a problem. With the spirit that fills the universe. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's kind of comical when you think about it. Uh, um, and I don't think uh, you need concern yourself with God in step two. At all. Not really. The first thing in step two is to say, am I with the right bunch of people? Am I with people who are candid enough about the ways in which they are broken that I know that I am you and you are me? Once I've got that connection, we're in business. Then I can say, have any of you got, I love the, I, I don't like quoting from the book, but I like the four, four phrases, power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction. If I can find people who have, in my home group, power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction, and you were as broken as I currently am, then I have to believe that power is available to you. Because if you're like me, and information wasn't your problem, but lack of power was your problem, and you have found power... um, I have to believe that power exists. And I remember thinking, sitting in a room in Ifield Road in August 1993, which was a Joyce of Recovery meeting, which is very much like one of the, the Road to Recovery last night. And one thing I did get from, from, from that <coughs> was that there were clearly people in that room who had power, peace, happiness and a sense of direction. And there's a little little bit of logical algebra where you say, um, "Either these people are telling the truth collectively, or they are lying collectively." And something told me at a deep level, I wasn't so sure about the people two, three, five years sober. some of the people 10, 20, 30 years sober, I believed. There was a woman called Sue. Who was thirty years sober in nineteen ninety three? Um, she's known variously as Plumsted Sue and Angry Sue. <laughs> um, she was a tough old. She was a tough old bird. I remember phoning her up from. Uh, a phone box at the end of the road, and I phoned. I'd phoned everyone else, and you only phoned Sue when you were seriously in trouble. She was never the first person you phoned. She was always. She was the one you phoned. She was the one you kept in your back pocket. You always need to keep your powder dry when you're in trouble. You you always need to keep one person to call when all else fails. And I called her and said, "I want a drink." And she said go and have a drink then. AA's for people that want to stay sober. And she put the phone down. <laughs> and I phoned back and I said, it's me. And she said, I know. And uh, I said, I don't want to drink, but I think I'm going to anyway. And she said, now we're in business. And we had a conversation. It was all, all right. But her and a bunch of other people, Maureen and Reed, and some great, great people, just exuded this peace. And I believed them. I didn't believe all the people that ran after them and parroted them. I didn't believe any of them. But I believed Maureen and Sue and Reed and a couple of other people. Um and some of these were bright people. The other, the other possibility is that they've, they've tricked themselves, that they believe it. They're telling the truth, but they've tricked themselves. But these, these were not stupid people. I had to believe that power was available to you. So when it says on page 47, you know, uh it came to believe that there was a power greater than ourselves. I could see that power. I could see that in your eyes. There was just something there. Um, The logic is this. If I can see the power working, if I can feel it, if I go to a meeting in pieces, you talk gibberish, and I feel better at the end, I can feel that power. I I know I'm going to be fine at least until the end of the day. I can feel that power. If I know what the channels are, if I know the groups I go to, the work that I do in AA, the sponsorship of other people, the the prayer and the meditation, if I know that that invokes the power, that makes the power flow, there must be a source. You can't see the wind, but you can see its effect on leaves on trees. Something must be making those leaves move. And an interesting question is, where did that wind start? And it's the same with God. I don't need to know what God is or who God is or where God started or what came before God or why there's a war in wherever. (laughs) Irrelevant. My only concern is do you have power? Either I believe you or I don't, which is why I think the biggest thing that we have to offer in Alcoholics Anonymous, or any other 12-step fellowship is authenticity. Because without it, step two is dead in the water. Because people were coming to me with solutions uh, my whole life, but I didn't identify with them so I couldn't accept them. The last question, uh, the step two proposition, either God is everything or God is nothing. Um, sounds like a pretty abstract question, but what that means to me in a very concrete sense is if that power is available to you, it kind of has to be available to everyone. Why would it be available to some people and not others? Do I think I'm different? Why do I think I'm different? Make a list of the reasons you think you're different. And then look for people in your home group for whom this has worked, who have also been divorced, or were also abused as a kid, or also have got a dead brother, or whatever the excuse is, you'll find someone with the same excuse, who's got and stayed sober and has an amazing life. And it would be of supreme arrogance to say, it's gonna work for you, but my case is different. Which is why identification with truth that other people share and and people that I don't even suspect I'm going to identify with. You know when you identify with someone and you really don't want to because you hate them? (laughs) Totally involuntary. Um, And then the rest of it, the rest of step The rest of it is to to, to go and do something about it. And if step one is a no-brainer, I'm toast unless something happens, unless I get connected to this power. The power is there. The power is there for me. Step three, you're going to do it. I've never got someone through the first two steps in that manner who does not instantly beg for step three and the rest of this program. If you're not begging at this point, there's a problem somewhere in the first two steps, there really is. Step three, um, thank God I do, I do not need to work out how to turn my will and my life over to God. Um, the truth is that if I take the rest of the steps, my life and will will be turned. So I don't need to, it's like you're in a lift and there are 12 buttons and all you have to do is press the buttons in order. And most people in recovery spend their time trying to feel around the walls for the hidden buttons. Like there's something, people say sometimes I, I, every day I turn my will and life over to God. I'm like, how do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I've been here a while and I don't know how to do that. I still don't, but what I do know how to do is say to God, what do I do now? What is the next action? I can do that. I don't even say, God, what's the next right action? Because I don't know. What's that they say? I heard them say in New York a while ago, what's the next indicated action? You ask God for help. (laughs) You say, God, what do I do? What do I do next? And whatever comes, go with it. You'll soon find out if it's a mistake. Something will blow up. Uh, but the, the step three idea is that up to this point, I've messed up. If I, I spent my whole life shooting. For health, happiness, harmony, love, joy, peace, and connection. And if you get to a point and you've been having a stab at this for a few decades and you ain't got it, give up. It's as simple as that. If you don't, if you if you're not at peace, something's gone wrong, and you can't blame the world because there are people in this world who are at peace. So it ain't the world. <laughs> and to say there has to be a different way. And the relief in step three is to say you know those. Five things I talked about what you think about me, pride, what I think about me, self esteem, how you treat me, personal relations, sex relations, what I want, ambitions, what I need, security are no longer any of my business. My business, trying to stay close to God and performing His work well, and to put that in language that I understand, I'm going to be praying, I'm going to be meditating. But most of all, one aspect of God is truth. Another aspect of God is love. And if I am telling the truth to you on a regular basis and you are telling the truth to me on a regular basis and I concentrate on what I can do for you, I will be staying close to God. So there's nothing fancy there. It's not about doing transcendental meditation and achieving altered states. And if you want to do that, and that works for you, knock yourselves out. But that's in addition to what this program asks me to do, which is to tell the truth and to be of service to you. And to perform his work well means to take the next indicated action. And the guiding principle on page 128 is giving rather than getting. So to concentrate on what I'm giving and not what I'm getting. And... God as the director, me as the actor means simply that. That if life is a play, I'm not the audience. I don't hand it over and wait for it to happen. I'm not the prompt. So when you get it wrong, it's not my job to tell you you've got it wrong or to remind you of your lines. I'm not the director. I'm not the producer. I'm not in charge of anything other than saying my lines. And an actor doesn't have to write his own lines. I always thought I had to. The lines are already there. I just need to get still enough. If I can get still enough, I'll see them. A friend of mine describes it like the gold at the bottom of a pool. If the water, if you're thrashing around in the water, you won't see the gold at the bottom. If you're still enough, it was there all along. Uh, a couple of other things about a relationship with this power. What I've been taught is um, that we're God's kids. And what that means for me is that I'm made of the same stuff as God. I'm not my own body. I'm not my own past. I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my emotions. I'm not everything that has ever happened to me. I'm not where I live. I'm not who I am with. I'm none of those things. I'm spirit and so are you. All those things are where I've been and where I am now. It's not who I am. I am the person observing all of that stuff. Anything that's the kid of something else is made of the same stuff. And another couple of things. Uh, As one of God's kids, AA sounds like very hard work at times. I know DAA sounds like very hard work (laughs) at times. Absolutely. (laughs) What what do they say about being in the trenches and at the coalface? And and there is some of that. There's undoubtedly some of that. But as a kid, a, a kid's job is not to worry about anything. A kid's job is to be happy, joyous and free. And to love, learn, grow and play. And if you're not loving and learning and growing and playing, you're missing something. Um, So, the um, step three is a decision um, to take the rest of the steps and trust that that will be sufficient and to stop trying to work out how to get well. (laughs) 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 So um, should we have a ten minute break? Yeah. And then I'll talk about the other steps afterwards. Yeah, great. Just quickly. um...